Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, a couple years ago, I was tucking my youngest daughter, Andrea, into bed, and she said, I have a riddle for you. She's like six or seven at the time. So I said, okay, what's, what's your riddle? She said this. She said, there was a plane that crashed into a mountain, and there, were no, there wasn't a single survivor. Let me say that again. She got it right. A plane, she's six or seven. A plane crashes into a mountain. There isn't a single survivor, but two people lived. How is that possible? I was stumped. And then she said, the answer, she said, it's possible because they were married to each other. That's why there wasn't a single survivor. I'm like, not bad. Not bad for a little, little kid. Well, two weeks ago, we started a, a, a teaching series on marriage. And that little riddle actually ties in well with, um, with what we've been looking at. Here's a passage that we've been looking at throughout uh, the series so far. This comes from the very first book of the Bible, and the, just two chapters in. It says this, The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And there you see we put the Hebrew word that's, that's used for helper, that we translate as helper there, the Hebrew word, ezer. You know, the verbiage that's used here in this passage for marriage, it is inspiring. It's inspiring. That Hebrew word, ezer, it's a word that means to supply strength in the area that is lacking in the health. Isn't that inspiring? That vision of marriage? To have somebody who's going to be there for you, to enrich or for poor, better or for worse, you know, thick and thin, ups and downs, that's going to be there for you and is going to pro- provide Strength in the area that's helped. That is an inspiring, inspiring vision. Well, the verbiage used here, it's also exclusive. Here and in the rest of this chapter, the language that's used, it's exclusive. The combination of words that we translate into English as suitable helper is used only in Genesis chapter 2 in all of the ancient literature of the time. Not just in the Bible, but in all ancient literature of the time. It's exclusive language reserved just for this particular relationship. And God's design for marriage is not just inspiring. It's not just exclusive. God's plan for this is profound. Absolutely profound. We've, we've mentioned several times in this series that it's only together, soak this in, it's only together as men and women that we can bring eternal beings into this world. And not only can we bring eternal beings into this world, we bring eternal beings into this world that bear our image, mom and dad, and the image of God. That is profound. Marriage was designed by God to be a relationship like no other relationship. Which is precisely why when a marriage feels dead or when a marriage is struggling, it can be the source of such deep pain. Now, Genesis 2.18, it's not the only place that the word Ezra shows up in the Bible. And one of the things that I find fascinating is that same word refers to God elsewhere. Here's an example of that. This is from the book of Hosea, chapter 13, verse 9. Look at this. You're destroyed, Israel. You're destroyed because you're against me, against your helper. When Ezra turns against Ezra, what hope is there? When Ezra turns against Ezra. Well, last week what we did is we looked at how the battle for the marriage that you hope for, how it begins before you say, I do. We had a message entitled, Preparing to Promise, and we looked at how how that the marriage that you want begins before you're ever married. 
and, and, and how you prepare for that day. Well, what we're going to look at today is this. And there's a place to write this down. Your notes inside your bulletin. You should have received a little green sheet. So once you pull that out, I'd encourage you to write this down. This is, where we're, this is what we're going to focus on today. You're not done when you say, I do. You're not done when you say, I do. If you want to live out this vision that God had, this inspiring vision, this exclusive vision, this profound vision, it, it's not done when you say, I do. It continues long after the honeymoon ends. Uh, just yesterday, I officiated another wedding. It was down at the Millennium Gardens in Plymouth. Anyone ever been there? It's beautiful. I'd never been there either. Um, beautiful. And, and I was starting in my head to just do some calculations. And I was thinking, how, much did, how many hours went into this? Because these guys poured so much of themselves into it. It wasn't just one of the cookie-cutter wedding. It was, we really want to make this real and personal. So every little piece of it had themselves into it. And it was beautiful. And I'm just thinking, how many hours does it take to do all of this kind of stuff? And I didn't want to guess how many dollars went into it. And I'm thinking about that because that's just one day. That's day one of their marriage. They invested a whole lot of hours they invested a whole lot of money into day one of their marriage. And if they're a typical couple, if they're normal, if they're normal Americans, here's where they're going to end up. This is a statistic from a book I read not too long ago. Married couples spend less than three minutes of meaningful conversation together in a typical day. That's normal. That's where marriages in America will drift. From day one, thousands of dollars, thousands of hours, this is normal in America, it'll drift towards this. And it was really a good fact checker. At nine o'clock, my fact checker, my wife was here. You know, it's just really good for us to put these kind of things on the screens because this isn't a, hey, thou shalt, this is a we could benefit from type of message. Three minutes, wow, how does that happen? Most couples start off so strong. Most couples, they're getting married because they're drawn to each other. They make sincere promises. Couples, when they're up there, they make sincere promises. And these promises, they don't just get up there and make them with each other. They invite their family and friends. Come and look at our promises. And they, they, they make these promises under God. They say, God, we're making these promises before you. And then they sign a document that says we made these promises. So how does the bond grow weaker over time instead of stronger. Why is that? You ever stop to think about that? Why? Why is the gravitational pull in the relationship not towards stronger over time, but the gravitational pull is towards the three minutes a day or less of meaningful conversation? I mean, think about that. It seems surprising when you, when you stop and, and, and look back. You know, why is it that the person you're willing to commit your life to becomes the person you most take for granted? That happens in most relationships. How is it for others? The person you're most drawn to becomes now the person that irritates you the most. How does that happen? And, and this one, on a very serious note, how on earth is domestic abuse not an oxymoron when you think about it? Why is domestic abuse not an oxymoron? Because this is a person that you pledged your love and fidelity to. This is, this is, in most of these houses, there's pictures all over the place. You know, look, chronic, chronicling, chron, 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 marking <laughs> moments in your life together. 
why, why is it that these things don't naturally draw, draw us together? I mean, some, some of these families, there's, there's kids. You know, why does the miracle of birth not naturally draw us together? Now, there's many reasons why. Many reasons why. But here's one of them, and here's, I think, the most common reason. Here's why we naturally drift apart. Because marriage is hard. Say that with me. Marriage is hard. Say it again. Marriage is hard. Just the men. Marriage is hard. Women, marriage is hard. It is. When you get married, it's good for us to say these things out loud. When you get married, everything gets more complicated. Holidays get more complicated. Expectations are more complicated. How you spend your time gets more complicated. How you spend money gets more complicated. Communication gets more complicated. Friendships are more complicated. Personal dreams and goals and habits and behaviors are more complicated. Everything, everything is more complicated. And perhaps, and perhaps, if both husband and wife came into the marriage as perfectly healthy, perfectly whole, perfectly self-aware people, perhaps then these challenges would bring you closer together. But nobody comes into a marriage. Nobody comes into a marriage perfectly healthy, perfectly whole, perfectly self-aware. There was a great book that Natalie Schmidt uh, recommended to me. I'd recommend it to all of you. It's called Love and War. We, we, we wrote the reference there in your, in your notes. It's a great book. I want to give you some excerpts from that book. There are some gems here. Some gems here when it comes to understanding, at least from this perspective, is written by a husband and wife team. And it was from their perspective. Here are some of the reasons why it's so hard, it's so challenging to be in this relationship. They said, they just come out and say it. Marriage is fabulously hard. And they're not pointing fingers at others. They just, they go into some of their own stuff here. Marriage is fabulously hard. Everyone who's been married knows this. And newly married couples, they seem genuinely surprised. Are we doing something wrong? Did I marry the right person? Listen, look at this imagery here. The sirens that lure us into the marriage. Romance, love, passion, sex, longing, companionship. They seem so far from the actual reality of married life that we fear we've made a colossal mistake. Our experience then comes as something of an embarrassment. You know, maybe it's just us. Nope. This is everyone. And the sooner we get the shame and confusion off our backs, the sooner we're going to find our way through. Of course marriage is hard. For heaven's sake, bring together a man and a woman, two creatures who think and act and feel so differently that you'd think they'd come from separate solar systems. Ask them to get along for the rest of their lives under the same roof? That is like taking Cinderella, Huck Finn, toss him in a submarine, close the hatch. What did you think would happen? And then from her perspective, uh, Stacy Eldridge writes this. She says, good grief, I feel like a sponge. I can have a great day, feel pretty good. The next day, I'm all dried out. This is the nature of our condition. When it comes to happiness, our soul is like a colander, a tire with a nail in it, our grandfather's memory. This is brutal on a marriage. If we're not aware of this and we don't know how to handle it, our insatiability will do a lot of damage. And then from his perspective, John Eldridge writes this. He says, men face a different sort of emptiness. We're forever frustrated in our ability to conquer life. That's the sweat of our brow, thorns and thistles thing. And then he, uh, he uh, quotes Genesis chapter 3. He says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through your painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. A man aches for affirmation, 
for validation, to know he has what it takes. Now, he says, you take these fears, you take this brokenness, you take this famished craving, throw these two together into the same house, lock the door, and what ensues is not hilarity. What ensues is the pain, disappointment, confusion that most people describe as their marriage. But again, what do you expect? I mean, are you really surprised? A couple more excerpts. The human heart, listen to this. The human heart has an infinite capacity for happiness and an unending need for love because it is created for an infinite God who is unending love. When we bring the aching abyss of our hearts to one another with the hope, the plea, make me happy, fill this ache, often out of love we do our best to make one another happy and then we wonder why it doesn't last. Well, it can't be done. We're broken people with a famished craving in our hearts. We're all fallen, all of us. It happened long ago, back in the Garden of Eden, so early into humanity's story that most of us don't even realize it happened. But the effects of the fall are something we live with every day. One last excerpt. Every woman now has an insatiable need for relationship, one that can never be filled. It is an ache in her soul designed to drive her Men instinctively know that the bottomless well is there, and they pull back. You know, they say, I don't want to be engulfed by that. Besides, no matter how much I offer, it'll never be enough. Wow. And that's some real stuff there. Real stuff. And the thought that comes into my head as I, as I think about this, and I think about my own relationship, I think about people I know, you know, I think one of the reasons we get disappointed, disappointed in ourselves, that we're not measuring up, disappointed in our spouse, that they're not measuring up. We get disappointed because we've appointed them or we've appointed ourselves to a role that we can't fill. We're usually disappointed when we've appointed someplace, someone in a place that, that they, they, they can't be. Now, if all this isn't tough enough, if the inherent difficulty of two broken colanders attempting to fill each other isn't enough, now look at what God tells us to do. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, I want to let you know, too, that we keep a stack of those on those tables, uh, and we'd encourage you to take one. You can use it here, or you can just take it home. In fact, we'd love for you, if you don't have a Bible, for you to just take it home. You don't have to tell us. You don't have to sign anything. Please take it as a gift to you. But this is not Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 is where you find the longest single discourse about marriage in the entire Bible. We're going to look at just a piece of it. Ephesians chapter 5, starting with verse 31. And it starts off by quoting, this language will sound familiar if you've been here, quoting Genesis chapter 2, which we've looked at before. So, here we go. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, if you do go and read all of Ephesians 5, which I'd encourage everyone to do, you read that and you start to look at the depth to which we're supposed to do this. It's crazy. If you read the whole chapter, you're going to see that broken and needy he, Colander, is called to love his wife, lay down his life for her as Christ laid down the church, or his life for the church, selflessly. So that's what he colander is supposed to do. Broken, he colander. 
And broken and needy she colander is called upon to love and respect and trust her husband as the church is to honor, respect, and trust Christ. It, it, please write this down. Marriage is hard, and as you begin to look at how this all plays out, it's, it's hard in part by design. Marriage is hard in part by design. God knows how different and needy we are. He created us. And yet, he doesn't set the bar at, hey, don't destroy each other. That's not where God sets the bar. He sets the bar, Ephesians 5. And he tells us elsewhere, go all in. No plan B. Love each other like you love no one else. And then he admonishes us to demonstrate through our marriage what the relationship between Christ and the church looks like. That's hard. That's hard. And it's by design. And then, if that's not enough, if already this bar isn't so high that you're like, how am I supposed to clear this thing? There's also this. Marriage is hard by design. Marriage is also hard because it's opposed. Because it's opposed. Just to check to make sure you're tracking with me, what chapter did we just read in Ephesians? Chapter 5. What comes after chapter 5? Chapter 6. Look at what follows chapter 5. This isn't me just stringing things together. This is how the Bible strings it together. Take a look at this. Ephesians chapter 6, starting with verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against one another? Nope. Against yourself? Nope. Against the devil's schemes. For our struggle, it's not against flesh and blood. It is against rulers. It is against authorities. It is against powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Are you kidding me? Not only are we faced with all of the previously mentioned challenges, there's a force that we can't see who is actively at work trying to undermine the marriage that we want. And according to the Bible, the powers and principalities that come against us, they are led by a fallen angel so cunning, so crafty, that he rallied one-third of the angels to rebel against God. And we read that this, this being was cast, cast from the heavens to earth, and he's filled with fury because he knows his time is short. He's the source behind the insurrection. Humanity mounts against their creator, and he targets Marriage between a man and a woman out of both spite and also out of the inherent potential within this type of marriage to reveal powerful mysteries about who God is and how God responds to those who place their trust in him. The very first couple, Adam and Eve, they squared off against this adversary in the very first book of the Bible. They couldn't maintain a united front against him, and he was successful in driving a wedge in the world's first marriage, he turned Ezra against Ezra. Among other things, their story makes it absolutely, utterly clear that we have an enemy. Marriage is hard in part because it's opposed by him. The powers of this dark world, they hate. They hate the beautiful vision of Christ and his bride and how marriage represents that. And they also hate the transformational potential that exists for those who live according to God's purposes. I had a guy come up after the first service, and, and I said, can I share your story sometime? And we'll probably have him come up and give it. But, but he comes up and he just says, you know, 
if you can press through the hard, there's another life that waits on the other side. When you can press through the, I'm living in this for me, but when I'm in this to serve, and I see a bunch of you nodding on this, there's another level you can get to in your relationship where it's secure and it's beautiful and it's wonderful. And that's what God wants to do in and through us, among other things. Well, here's the thing. My biggest takeaway from that book that I referenced earlier, I'm going to give it to you right now. You know, if, if you don't read the book, catch this. If you have tuned out to everything else I'm going to say, catch this. This was such a huge takeaway for me. And what they did is they gave me this word agreement. And they ascribed some meaning to this word. It, this was so helpful. I apply this often. When the enemy comes at us, almost always, this is what he did in the Garden of Eden, this is what he does today, almost always it comes as a thought. A thought that seems to have a lot of merit to it. A thought that seems right. A thought that makes sense. She always does that. He'll never change. It's her turn to say, I'm sorry. I'm never going to trust him again. This is too much work. Maybe it's not worth the effort. Maybe I married the wrong person. Maybe I'd be happier with somebody else. When these thoughts come in your mind, and not if, when these thoughts come in your mind, because we have an adversary who will put them there. If they come, don't be all filled with guilt. The enemy, he does this. He does this. When they come, rather than agreeing with those thoughts, choose to disagree with those thoughts. Don't come into agreement with that. This is exactly what he did in the garden. He whispered into their ear, did God really say? He whispered it. He's the father of lies. And he whispered these words in paradise. And when he whispered these words, a new narrative was established. And before you could say, Johnny Appleseed, you've got the first couple, Adam and Eve, dismissing God's commands, siding with a talking snake, wearing fig leaf skivvies, and pointing accusing fingers where? Everywhere else except at themselves. When you come into agreement with the father of lies, he's so good at what he does. He's done this forever. It's what he does does. When you come into agreement, then he starts to reframe the narrative. He starts to, to create this, this, this understanding. Here's the way it is. Here's the way it should be. Here's what you need to do. And rather than starting down that path to that narrative, to stand firm and say, I'm not going to agree with that. I'm not going to agree with that. Here's, here's a type of prayer you can use. And I, and I put this up here not as saying, here's the magic words, write these down, because if you say these exact words, then hocus pocus, the spell works. It's not about that. It's, but here's, here's literally, I will say things like this when a thought comes into my head in those rare occurrences, in case Laura's listening, those rare occurrences where I could be tempted to believe things that aren't true. Here's the type of thing I would say in my head. You know, I reject this thought for what it is. And I refuse to agree with it. Holy Spirit, fill me with your truth. Shine your light right now that I may agree with what you would have me to say, what you would have me to do, what you would have me to believe. Fill me with your peace. Fill me with your power. Fill me with your love that I may be used by you to strengthen this marriage. You know, to, to, when those thoughts come, to, to get into this habit of I'm not going to agree with them, even the smallest, I'm not going to start to let the narrative be defined for me. I'm going to look at what God's narrative says to do that. And here's the thing. As you pray, don't just pray alone unless you absolutely have to. If you have a believing spouse, don't pray alone. If you're not praying together as a couple, you're bringing that proverbial knife to the gunfight. 
One of the whole purposes, there's so many purposes for marriage, one of the whole purposes of marriage is, is now you've got somebody who's your answer. you got, you got built-in prayer support, potentially. And again, even as I write this, I had to apologize last night, came home, had to apologize to Laura. I said, Laura, we're not doing this. You know, I'm not doing this. I'm not taking the lead in this. Because sometimes when there's conflict, prayer is the last thing you feel like doing. Sometimes when you've gotten out of the habit of it or you've never done it before, it just feels silly. But we've got to do this. We've got to do What an opportunity. Who cares more about your family than you do besides God? Who understands your needs more than you do besides God? So why would we not? Why would we not say, God, we want to activate your power and involve you in this situation? And when you pray, here's what you tap into. And before we get into the specifics of that, please write this down. This was my aha moment. I was just planning in this message to to focus in on Ephesians 5 and unpack it and everything. But I heard this voice that said, just read the whole thing. Read all of it. And it doesn't take that long. You can read all of Ephesians. 20 minutes, something like that. It doesn't take long. But I encourage you to read it all because look at this. When you consider how ridiculously hard marriage is, you got to remember the book of Ephesians doesn't begin in chapter 5. It doesn't begin in chapter 6. Where does Ephesians begin? Chapter 1. And you're like, he's the pastor. This is all you got? There's, this, no, stick with me on this. This is huge. This is absolutely huge. Ephesians 5, if you were just to start at Ephesians 5, you'd be all depressed because I can't do that. I can't love that way you're saying to love. She certainly can't love me the way that it says to love. So you could end up depressed. And then you read chapter 6 and you're like, oh, and on top of this, good luck. You're facing the father of lies who tempted a third of the angels to rebel against God. So you look at that, but it doesn't start in 5. It doesn't start in 6. It starts in chapter 1. I want to encourage everybody here, married, not married, read 5, read 6. Then go back to the beginning and read 1 through 6. And, and if you so choose, read it through the lens of marriage. It was a wow moment. Wow moment. You know, here's, here's one of the problems we face. You want to put up the Norman Rockwell painting? Now, when it comes to marriage, everyone's got their picture, right? It probably doesn't look like this. But you've got a picture. When you think of marriage, here's how marriage should be. We have a picture in our head. We have some something. You know, we, we have a picture of what our house should look like, our apartment should look like, how our evenings or weekends should be spent, what kind of vehicle we will and won't drive, where we'll vacation, how many kids we will and won't have. I don't know what your picture is, but you've probably got a picture. And, and what Ephesians does and what God does is he helps us to right-size our vision because often our vision is too small. It is too trivial. Instead of looking at this vision that God gives us, the Bible expands our vision. We're invited into a story that is so much bigger than any of us or what any marriage could be. We are invited into the story that began in Genesis, continues through Revelation. It is the story of a creation that rebelled against its creator. And it's a story of a merciful creator who reaches out at great personal sacrifice, at great personal cost, and he reaches out to redeem and reconcile and restore that which was broken. You missed an amen moment on that one. Amen. Amen. He is a God who is like no other. He is a God who is like no other. Here are some excerpts. If we had time, I would just read the thing straight through. Listen to some of these excerpts from Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 
God set forth in Christ to unite all things, things in heaven, things on earth. And humanity was chosen to play an instrumental role in that redemption, in that reconciliation, in that restoration. Catch a vision for this. Look at this. Ephesians 1 continues with these. He chose us. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for the adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. In him, we've obtained an inheritance according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We are his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And when you choose to put your full trust in God, you are equipped with power from on high, and he describes this power in Ephesians. Ephesians 1, listen to this type of power that is available to us. God grants a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, and he directs the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. His great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and he seated him in the heavenly places far above all rule, all authority, all power and dominion. This comes before six. Before we read about those other powers, we read about the power, capital P. Now, prior to this indwelling power of the Spirit of God, look at this, because this might be where some of you are coming from. You might feel this way right now. We were dead prior to this. And he's, he's talking to these people. He wrote this letter to them. And this was their experience. They were dead before this. Power came upon them. We were dead in trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following what the world does, the three minutes of conversation stuff. We were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons and daughters of disobedience. Carrying out the desires of body and mind, we were by very nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Do you see what happens when you alienate yourself, when you turn against your ezer? What chance do you have? But look at this, Ephesians 2. Oh, we could spend a year here. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he loved us, even though we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show to the world through us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This comes before Ephesians 5. This comes before any challenge to go and live. This, this comes, but God, rich in mercy, he reached out to us first. We who were once separated from God, we were alienated from his covenant of grace. We've been united with him. Through no merit of our own, he himself became our peace that we would no longer be strangers and aliens and objects of wrath, but rather members of the household of God and participants in this great work of reconciliation. And then Ephesians goes on and gives example after example how we as God's people we're revealing these great mysteries, these things that God did in us and for us. Now we are able to reveal this to the world as we break down walls that divide between Jew and Gentile, slave and free, parents and children, husband and wife. This is what we're about. 
We're about experiencing this and then showing the world. And I think it's worth noting, do you know where Paul was when he wrote these words? He was in prison. And Paul was single. He talked about these amazing things about marriage. He was single. And he was in prison. And he's near the very end of his life when he writes these words. And from this place of true selfless living, he lived this out. He lived this out. He, he, he lived out this idea of, of God has done this for me and I'm just going to pour out my life for him. He says, don't ever lose heart. This is from Ephesians 3.20. He says, don't ever lose heart. He is far able to do abundantly more than all we ask or all we think according to the power that is worked within us. And then as one who is literally imprisoned for the sake of his witness, he admonishes us, Ephesians 4, verse 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you, I urge you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with humility, with gentleness, with patience, with bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And in this last section, ah, nice job, Dan, fixed it from 9 o'clock. Look at this. This is from the same chapter where we started. This brings us now full circle. Be imitators of God in your singleness, in your marriage. Be imitators of God if you have a marriage where it's just you got a couple little things you're working through or you got big things. Be imitators of God. It's going to look different, slightly different for different people, but be imitators of God. As beloved children, know that, your beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Will you commit to that today? There will be a voice that whispers in your head to, that will try to get you in agreement with a lot of other things. I've tried that. I don't have hope. Uh, it's too hard. I, I don't know what the voice in your head is. And also, let me just hit pause on this too. Please don't hear me say that what I'm telling you right now is, oh, just pray about it. That's not what we're saying. What, this isn't a just pray about it. This is a, are you willing to say, God, my life is 100% yours. Whatever you ask, I will do. Whatever road you, you prescribe for me, I'll walk down. If it takes week, if it takes a year, if it takes the rest of my life, I don't know where it's going to go. But, will you, but that's what we're asking. You know, we serve a God who gave everything. We have a great call of witnesses like Paul who gave everything. And as you lay everything before, you tap into the power of that God who gave everything and who will do everything. Will you say, I'm all in. God, I'll do whatever you ask. I'll set the best example I can, believing you'll honor this. For those who are married, here's your question. We had a question for Single folks, last week, here's a question for you if you're married. Are you becoming the person that you want to be married to is married to? After last week's message, which was, you know, for, for people who aren't married, I had all kinds of parents come up and said, oh, can I get that message? Is that going to be on podcast? Can I get the notes? You know, and, and rightfully so, saying, I know somebody who I want to give this message to. Hey, today, if you're married, no nudging the person you're married to. Are you becoming the person? you want to be married to is married to? Are you seeking God with all your heart? Saying, God, I will do whatever you ask me to do. Are you willing to do that? Well, what I want to do as we close today, I'm going to ask the worship band to come on up. And, and I, I'm sorry I sprung this on them, but I asked them the day of the rehearsal, could you add one more song? A song called Stronger.
because I hadn't done all my reading of all Ephesians yet. And I had read all the Ephesians, and I'm looking at this unsurpassing great power of God that is available to us. What a great proclamation for us to close with. It's a song we've done before. And, and I want us to just declare this, that God is stronger. He's stronger. Greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world. And let's invite and let's declare that great power of God to be at work at us as we close the service. Let me pray and then turn it over to them. Lord, I thank you. I thank you that, that you're a God who doesn't start in chapter 5 or start in chapter 6. I mean, that's naturally where some of us in this room, you know, I'm having a little confession with you right now. Some of us just go there naturally and we beat ourselves up. And we come to you so often, we just say, we're sorry, I don't have the strength. I'm sorry, I failed again. I'm sorry, I didn't get it right. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Lord, thank you that you didn't start in Ephesians 5. And Lord, we thank you that you didn't start in Ephesians 6 with scary tales designed to keep us out of trouble. As helpful as that can sometimes be, Lord, thank you that you didn't just make up these well, it wasn't stories, that you didn't just give us scare tactics. But instead, thank you for revealing yourself through chapters 1 and 2 and 3 and 4. That you're a God of great mercy. That you're a God of great grace. That it was you who first united us with you and who desires to bring that relationship closer and closer and closer. And Lord, as we face these challenges, and for some of us, our challenge is more just, how do we deal with some of the little things? And for others, it's, God, I have no idea where to go. Lord, thank you that you promise us to be there in the midst of all of it. And thank you for the strength that you reveal about yourself. And we want to declare that right now through the song, and we want to receive it into our lives as we yield our lives fully to you. In Jesus' name. You know, the thought comes to me that a lot of couples have a song. You got to get a song like this. You got to get a song like this. A song where it's more than just the resolve that the two of you have together. But a song where you're inviting the power of God into your life. If you're feeling like someday God wants me to be married and you're not married, find someone who sings a song like that. If you're married, continue to seek out songs like that that you can remind each other with. Play them in your house. Play them. You know, get them on your iPad. And if you feel like I'm singing that song solo right now and I'm in a marriage, hear this from God. The angels are singing with you. And we're singing with you. Let's pray as we go forth. Father, I want to start right there. I pray for those who need hope. Father, fill them with hope. Don't let us be a voice of simplicity, but let us be a voice of confidence that can at least direct them to the source. And let us be more than that. Let's be more than a voice of confidence. Let us be a voice of, of commitment to say we walk with you, brother, sister. Let us know how we can help or, or just invite us in. And Lord, I also pray for those couples who are both singing this song. Lord, we all need those reminders. And thank you for the reminder that you gave us today you are stronger. As we go forth from this place, Father, may we go forth with your peace. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. See you next week.